You're listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, you can find us at faithchurchindy.com. Now here's the teaching. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Joey. Hey, if this is your first time with us, you should know that we've been studying the book of Acts, taking it about one story a week for almost a year now. Uh, We're finishing up chapter 12 today, finishing this major section that we've called uh, the scattering of the gospel. Uh, Starting next week, by the way, we're going to take a break from Acts to study Lamentations during the Lenten season. You can get uh, uh, Lamentations scripture journals down at the info desk uh, or pick up our Lenten journals that we have printed copies of for you down there as well. Now, in Acts, over the last couple of weeks, we've been watching as persecution and attacks have forced the majority of the followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem and into nearby territories. But they've been taking with them the good news that Israel's Messiah, Jesus, is the Lord of the whole world and that he offers life to anyone in his name, anyone who believes. Now, last week we read this great story of how God rescued uh, one of the apostles, Peter, when he was put in prison by the latest Roman king of Judea trying to make a name for himself, this guy named Herod Agrippa. He's going to feature prominently in the story today. Uh, But last week we were looking at this story in the context of the church wrestling with God's sovereignty. Why did God rescue Peter but allow James, another apostle, to be killed? Why doesn't he treat everyone equally? And the church, in the midst of that, also had to wrestle with its relationship to political power. Are they, is the church supposed to fight back or just submit? Is there possibly a third way that the church can engage the world around it? And uh, I mentioned last week, I don't particularly enjoy preaching sermons that touch on politics because it's just such a hot-button issue. I'm not really keen to preach another one, except that's where the text takes us today. <sighs> the next... Episode in the saga of the early church is going to take us into the realm of politics. So let's jump in. (laughs) Well, hey, uh, I grew up in Iowa in the 90s. Anyone else grow up in Iowa? Yes, thank you. I knew you, Scott. Good to see you. There's only one in first hour. I have never met any anyone born in any other state who was as grilled as Iowans are on basic Iowa civics. The only class I clearly remember from middle school, other than health class, that one was memorable for other reasons, the only class I remember was Mr. Wenthe's sixth grade Iowa civics class. Did you know states have official state rocks? Yeah, and the official state rock of Iowa is the? Geode, thank you, babe. (laughs) Scott didn't know. Oh my goodness. The geode, and we have an official state bird, the eastern goldfinch, and an official state tree, the mighty, mighty oak. And an official state song, sung to the tune of Oh Christmas Tree. You ask what state I love the best? It's Iowa. It's Iowa. The fairest state of all the West. Iowa. Oh, Iowa. And that's not even the whole song. There's seven verses. But uh, my favorite thing to learn was we had to learn all the state mottos, or at least most of the state mottos, Iowa's and then the states around us. And state mottos are fascinating because the brightest minds at the time get together to try to say what it just embodies the character of our place in the commonwealth. And they come up with this great stuff. Uh, some of the state mottos are just declarations of facts, like Indiana, Crossroads of America. True. 
right? Okay, it doesn't really say much else. Some of them are a uh, little more fancy statements of facts, like Minnesota, l'étoile du Nord, the star of the north, but in French. <laughs> Most state mottos are aspirational and usually in Latin, like Kansas is ad astra per aspera, to the stars through struggle. And I think they're still struggling to get a launch pad up and running in Kansas. Others are aspirational, but not fancy at all, like Wisconsin, which is just forward. <laughs> I was always proud, though, of Iowa's state motto, because our state motto is not aspirational, it's not a statement of fact, uh, and it's not in Latin. Our state motto is a threat. Our liberties, we prize, and our rights, we will maintain. That's the Iowa State motto. And I don't think that attitude is necessarily just limited to Iowa. Uh, part of the mythology of being an American, you know, key part of the story that we tell ourselves is that we are fighters. Right? We are warriors. We're the ones who fight for justice. Our nation was forged in the fires of a war against unjust tyranny. And so we are the ones who make the world right. And if we have to use violence to do it, well, I mean, why else would God give us muscles and guns? It's what they're for. Because, whether you're an Iowan or not, our liberties we prize and our rights, you better believe it, we are going to maintain. Now, I'm 40, I'm still trying to figure out how my identity as an American intersects with and sometimes conflicts with my deeper identity as a follower of Jesus. Imperial America is not the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. So how do I operate as a citizen of multiple empires? It's especially hard in election years. Uh, when we have to endure political candidates all across the spectrum, each one trying to convince us that supporting them and their party and their platform is actually supporting the kingdom of God on earth. It's that important. And then into the middle of a year like this, we read stories like this little one in, in Acts in which the church has to respond to and live among the political forces of their day. And their response... The church's response totally upends our assumptions about what the relationship between church and politics could be. This short little five-verse story is fascinating just aside in the overall narrative of the early church. Luke could have skipped this story completely. Uh, he could have gone from uh, directly from Peter's rescue to a summary statement, the one he has in verse 24, uh, that in spite of the attacks, the word of God increased and multiplied. We would have never noticed. And yet Luke follows up the story of Herod Agrippa, uh, his targeted attacks on the Jewish leadership of the church, James and, and Peter. He follows up that story with this little short story of Herod's ultimate demise and, and judgment by God. It's a story in which the church plays absolutely no role. Church isn't involved in this story. No one leader, no one in any congregation, no one particular congregation has any role in this story. And yet Luke includes the story for us because I think this story addresses one of the church's deepest questions. 
Sure, theologically, we know that God will make all things right. But practically, in the, in the day-to-day, in the face of something like this, can we really trust that God will make things right? Can we trust that God will make things right? Well, let's dig into the details of the story and, and find out. We're picking it up in verse 20. You remember we were introduced to this uh, Herod character last week in AD 41. He was made king over Judea by the new, newly reigning Caesar, a guy named Claudius. He's, this guy is a, uh, a Herod. That's a, a family name. He's part of the dynasty that's ruled Judea for decades to you know, varying degrees of success. Now, this particular Herod, a guy named Agrippa, he only lasted three years as king over Judea. And since this story is about his death, uh, we know Luke is jumping forward about three years in time before verse 20, uh, taking us up to A.D. 44. It's kind of nice. We can pin down the timing of some of these events because of what other historians have recorded about you know, rulers and reigns in this time period. So the story picks up in verse 20 with just this short little an expositional comment, uh, setting the scene. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We aren't told why he was angry. Actually, Luke is the only historian who mentions even the fact of this dispute. Uh, But it's important to remember this story now is taking place outside of Jerusalem. We've moved about 60 miles north-northwest of Jerusalem up to the coast, the Mediterranean coast of Israel, to the town named Caesarea, named after the Caesar. It is the sort of local capital that exerts control over this whole area, including uh, Israel. If we were to set out and start walking uh, north from Caesarea, we'd go about 50 miles or so and cross the border from Israel into uh, Lebanon. And that border is still, that's where Agrippa's territory ended back in that day. Uh, Keep going another 15 miles or so and you'd hit Tyre. And 25 miles after that, you'd get to Sidon. And if you went another 30 miles, you could say hi to our friends in Beirut. Now, the cities of Tyre and Sidon are almost always mentioned together because they've been in this political alliance for well over a millennium. Uh, You could think of them as the twin cities of the ancient Near East. For their entire history, they have relied on food supplies from Judea to the south and food from Egypt shipped through Judea, which means whoever's in charge of the region of Israel can hugely influence the fate of Tyre and Sidon. So it's in their best interest to kind of maintain a good relationship with whoever's in charge, in this case, Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa. Now, something happens, we don't know what, the relationship breaks down, Agrippa retaliates by restricting their food supplies, so representatives from two of the cities kind of work their networks and manage to secure an audience with Agrippa through his right-hand man, his most trusted guy, this guy named Blastus, which is a great name, by the way. Uh, This is the only place he ever shows up. I just think it'd be cool to be named Blastus. I mean, you guys are like... As soon as I mentioned politics, it got really quiet in here, and I'm trying to like, lighten it a little bit, so work with me here, all right? Anyway, whatever it cost them to get this audience, uh, it was worth it. It's cheaper than the cost of an angry citizenship rioting and fighting for scarce food supplies. So, all right, let's, let's, let's get this to happen. So Agrippa hears their request, and 
chooses to share his decision, his ruling, during a particular festival that's held in Caesarea every few years, every five years or so, in honor of the Caesar, you know, the emperor. It's interesting because this was Agrippa's first chance to preside at this festival, and he has a a reputation for being generous, for being magnanimous. In fact, when he died, he died deeply in debt uh, because he kept borrowing from the imperial treasury in order to, you know, bless everybody around him. Anyway, this particular uh, festival gives him the opportunity to present himself as kind and wise and generous and and forgiving and, and, you know, caring for even his, his enemies, it's kind of like that first time your parents put you in charge of babysitting, right? And you're like, I got to win the crowd. So ice cream for dinner, everyone. Just don't tell mom, right? There's no better way to win a crowd than free ice cream or free donuts or free food or free whatever. Anyway, the action of the story, it picks up here in verse 21. On an appointed day, this particular day that Herod decided, he put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Now imagine a a raised platform, but with like an ornate throne chair up on top of it. This festival is a big deal, so there's there's a pretty big crowd that's crammed in to hear him speak. Now other historians give us even more detail. In particular, there's a a Jewish historian named Josephus uh, writing about the year 100 or so that he just waxes eloquent in describing this whole scene. He says, on the second day of the shows, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout of quite wonderful weaving and entered the theater at break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. It's like Taylor Swift taking the stage. Come on, even first hour laughed at that, guys. Ah. Anyway, Josephus continues, the the historian Josephus, not this one. Immediately, his flatterers called out from various directions in language which boded him no good, for they invoked him as a god. Be gracious to us, they cried. It's a very eloquent crowd. Hitherto we have reverenced you as a human being, but henceforth we confess you to be of more than mortal nature. Or as Luke puts it in Acts 12, 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. Oh, we're hearing the voice of a God. And Herod's response isn't really as pious as it should have been. Josephus tells us, you know, he didn't rebuke them, nor did he repudiate their impious flattery. And Luke tells us uh, he did not give God the glory. See, what's interesting, it's in trying to impress the crowds to appear magnanimous, Herod has put himself right in the middle of a politically difficult position to be in. In this culture and in this point in history, it's very easy, in fact, encouraged for the average person to think that the, especially the emperor, the, the Caesar, is a God present in the world. The Caesar is literally God incarnate. In their way of thinking, there is a hierarchy built into humanity, and you don't become a ruler or a leader, especially not an emperor, unless you are of a higher type of human being. Godlike, almost, they would say. 
And you know, when, when we just kind of lay it out like that, it sounds ridiculous, but functionally, we often operate the same way. Uh, we treat our celebrities with the same kind of regard, and we, we ascribe almost uh, godlike powers to our politicians when we, just, when we think just getting the right one in, in the right place would just magically solve uh, anything and everything. You know, anytime we assume that our guy is pure goodness and the other guy is pure evil and that the followers of our guy are always good and righteous and have uh, the best intentions at heart and the followers of the other guy are always evil and despicable and trying to destroy everything I, I, I love and believe in. Or even when we think that they're all evil, we're describing them not in human terms but using Terminology that would be better describing a Greek god or an angel or a demon. Well, thanks to Herod's flair for the theatrical, the crowd is hailing him as a god descended to earth to bless them, you know, to shower them with blessings. And Herod has to respond. He got himself into this mess. He's in a bit of a pickle if he shuts them down and says, no, 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 you, you've got it wrong. I'm just a man like you are. He loses the crowd and all the power that comes along with it, not to mention the you know, ego hit that you go through when you admit you're not what everyone thinks you are. At the same time, if he's to respond and agree with them and say, yes, you have it right. In fact, I am the God incarnate upon this earth and I'm here to bless you. Well, this is a festival in honor of Caesar. And there's no way that's not going to get back to his old friend from school, Claudius, who's now the emperor. If Agrippa is going to claim to be the one true Lord on earth, well, that, that's a title that Caesar reserves only for himself. If he's going to claim it, he's signing his own death warrant. You see the conundrum? Claim to be nothing but a man and you lose the crowd. Claim to be God on earth and you lose your head. It's an impossible situation, thanks to his own political maneuvering. So he says nothing. You know, I can neither confirm nor deny reports of my deity. Maybe he can keep his head and keep the crowd. It's because Agrippa, and this is, this is what we would expect, Agrippa, for all of his maneuvering and his posturing and all of his flexing of his political muscle that we've read about in just these two stories, for all the orchestration of events and, and perceptions, he still fails to reckon with the one power that he could never outmaneuver, never outposture, never outwit, the power of the one true God who will make things right. See, Luke makes it very clear that Herod fails. Herod is a Jew. Uh, if you remember, he was born of a Jewish mother, raised within Judaism. That's one of the reasons he was so popular with the Jewish population. Uh, they reasoned, I mean, if we have to be ruled by someone, we, maybe we should be ruled by someone who at least, you know, has our interests at heart instead of somebody who cares nothing about us. But he's Jewish, he should know better. What he should have done, whatever the political cost, was to rebuke the crowd and tell them, how dare you? How dare you ascribe to me something that God alone deserves? You should not be worshiping me. I'm made in God's image, yes, just like you, but your worship goes to him, not to me. But he doesn't say anything like that. And Luke tells us, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
And that phrase, eaten by worms, by the way, it's, it's kind of a standard Greek euphemism for saying he, he got what he had coming to him. Uh, it, it's a way that a lot of different authors use to describe the death of a particularly villainous character. Yeah, he got what he deserved. Josephus, again, gives us a, a few more details, telling us Agrippa was seized with a severe pain in the bowels, which kept increasing intensity for five days until he died. Right, not fun, not a great way to go. Now, in the, in the context of the chapter, the story that Luke is telling, it's obvious that the timing, the manner of Agrippa's death is a judgment from God. Luke explicitly tells us that. But it's for more than just this one incident of receiving blasphemous worship. See, Agrippa's highest motivation has always been his own political gain, and he's shown himself willing to use anyone or anything to kind of hoard and hold on to power and to curry favor with the, uh, the leaders of, of Judaism in Jerusalem. He's, he's set himself up as an enemy of the, the Jesus movement, but if the church were bigger and more influential, he would have easily reversed it and, and attacked Jewish leaders to curry favor with the church. Uh, in his mind, the church is just another political pressure group. It's, it's just another opinion block. And it's there to be manipulated and coerced into fearing him or supporting him, whatever is most convenient for him. Except, of course, the story makes it really clear, uh, he's not really taken into account the fact that the church serves a kingdom much higher than his own. And the church refuses to play his political game. He's contending with the church that whatever Herod does, the church is going to trust that God will make things right. Again, the, the curious thing about this short little story, which could have, again, could have easily been skipped, the curious thing is that the church plays no role in this story whatsoever. Everything happens without any involvement of the church or anyone in the church. So why do you think Luke includes a story in which the church actually doesn't feature at all? Why tell us the story about God judging a political leader who had attacked the church if the church had nothing to do with the judgment or the retribution? Well, I think maybe that that's actually the point is that the church had no role in God making things right. Because we left off the story last week, halfway through chapter 12, wondering in the context of uh, this targeted attack and the killing of James and Peter's rescue, we're wondering, okay, God, thanks for rescuing Peter, but are you going to do anything to judge those who are perpetrating evil in the world? Especially, God, are you going to do anything to judge those who are perpetrating evil against the movement of God in the world? We left last week wondering, okay, you rescued us. You've maybe forestalled this for a little bit, but, but God, when are you going to make things right? Can we trust God to make things right? 
It's a question that certainly resonates in our day as well, but many millions more of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history have suffered much more deeply at the hands of unjust rulers than, than we have. In comparison to the history of the world, we in the States today have it pretty easy, but I do know that you know, having someone come along and say, well, you think you've got it hard, I've got it way worse, is, is never really the best way of comforting someone. And it doesn't really just let you just ignore the question. Will God protect his church? Will God judge those who perpetuate evil against her? Will God make things right? Or maybe to put a little bit sharper point on it, can I trust that God will make things right? Can I trust that God will make things right, whether now or ultimately at the end of all things? Can I trust God will make things right and refuse to take judgment into my own hands? Can I trust that God will make things right? Because there's a curious contrast presented in this story, and especially as compared to the story before it. You know, when you're faced with political power, especially tyrannical political power, it seems like there are really only two options and then maybe whatever's in the middle along that spectrum. Some, uh, like the people of Tyre and Sidon, uh, respond to tyrannical power with acquiescence and, and flattery, even to the point of blasphemy. It's like, well, if that's the way he's going to treat us, we have to get him on our side. Others assume the only other option is to fight back, uh, to gain power, use power, to defeat power, and then do your best not to become, you know, evil in the process. Uh, our world just sort of assumes that those are the two options, uh, but the church in Acts 12, which is that whole, cha- this whole chapter is dominated by the question of political pressure, the church in Acts 12 does neither. Uh, she neither submits to Herod's power and cozies up to him. Well, let's just try and soften him, soften him and get him on our side. Nor does the church fight back with political manipulation or brute force. Submitting and fighting are, those are the responses of the world. Those responses are not available to those who follow the way of Jesus. The, third, the church finds a third way that isn't anywhere on that spectrum of submission to fighting back. The church instead prays and works and trusts that God will make things right. Maybe not now, but we know for sure in the future. Because right now, it's True, it's obvious to us that not all political leaders who attack the church will be judged instantly and die horrible deaths. Not even all political leaders who coerce and manipulate the church into doing what they want and giving them power will face judgment and a horrible death. And that's a, that's a good thing. It's good that people have time to, to reckon with what they've done and repent, but... We, the church today, have to be reminded, as we are in Acts 12, reading this story, that the power to make things right ultimately and finally lies with God, not with us. 
We're called to work towards making things right, not to fight to make things right. There's a big difference because those two words may overlap in describing all the same activities, and yet both they have very different feelings to them. Working and fighting, those two words carry some emotion. The emotions are different, and the church is called to work and pray, pray and work, trusting that all evil done in this world will ultimately be judged by God and made right, whether it's made right now or made right in the world to come. Now, that's not an excuse to do nothing. I'm not saying we submit and do nothing, nor am I saying that we fight back on the terms of the world. I'm saying we work and pray wherever the world's deepest needs come to the surface. But the question facing us, facing the church, I think, in the States today is, is work and prayer enough for us? Or do we feel like we really got to fight, too? Because we're Americans. Fighting's what we do. So is work and prayer and trust enough? Or would we prefer a church uh, that lives by a motto like our liberties we prize and our rights, you better believe it, we will maintain? Or, you know, there's all sorts of mottos we could give to ourselves. You don't count the dead when God's on your side. Hey, we're the church, don't tread on us. Or should the motto of the church, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus in this world, should the motto be something more like, I don't know, we'll just try this one on for size, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. Because all three of those are really hard work. And I'm convinced that in this election cycle, this election year, uh, it's going to be a trial for the church in the States unlike any trial that we've seen before. And it's not so much going to come down to what we do or what we don't do, how we vote or whether we decide not to vote or what any one politician tries to do to convince us that you know, their side is God's side and the other side is Satan's side. The trial is going to come down to How do we feel? And how does that motivate what we do? It's going to come down to the question of, do we trust that God will make everything right? If not now, then in the end. Do we trust him to make everything right even as we work to make right what we can now? Because our our anxieties in this year are going to reveal whether we really believe that or not. Because if we don't believe it, then if God's not going to make everything right now or in the future, then it's up to us. We're the last stand. We're the ones who have to make it right. But if we do believe that God is going to make all things right, if not now, then at the end, then we will actually have the peace to be able to work and pray and pray and work and trust. You may not know much 
about Iowa, at least not as much as uh, you know, a kid who was raised there in the 90s. But I'll bet you know this one. Is this heaven? No, it's... Is this heaven? It's the church. And we are where heaven meets earth. It's not in some party out there. It's in here and in each of us. We are the kingdom of God. Praying, working, trusting. So let's pray. Father, again, we, we, we find ourselves coming to you and confessing that we want to trust, and yet trusting is so difficult. And it's not difficult because you're not good or that you're untrustworthy or that we wrestle with your sovereignty and why you choose what to do when. It's difficult to trust because the things that, that frighten us, the things that give us anxiety, the things that, that are scary to us, are, are, they feel so much closer than you. So, Father, we pray that you you would empower us for the work of bringing Jesus closer to us, dwelling on what he has done for us, and that his sacrifice, his ultimate victory over evil would be so upfront, close and center for us that we could find all of our anxieties wrapped up and sucked up into his death, trusting that you will make all things right. And trusting that even if you don't make things right now, you will when you come. And so with, with the church, the early church and the church throughout the ages, we pray simply, Lord Jesus, come and make things right. We pray in his name. Amen.